You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi, welcome back. Welcome everybody today. Welcome everybody online. Glad to be with you and back today. We, as you can see, are in a series called Zoe, looking at the incredible promise Jesus Christ gave us when he said he came to give us something called abundant life. So each week in the series, if you've been tracking with us, you know we're looking at that, looking at his promise, looking at a problem or a tension that gets in the way of the promise, and then a practice that can help us break through. So promise, problem, then practice. Here we go. Our scripture reading is going to be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. You can follow along. Here we go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the reading of God's word. Come on, all his people today said... Amen. Yeah. All right. To get going, let's do a very quick, a very broad and highly imprecise personality assessment. Don't get nervous. All right. How many of you? Here we go. How many of you would describe yourself as an introvert? Okay. All right. The way you can know you are is if, even if you are, you're refusing to lift your hand right now. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to let him know. All right. On the other hand, how many of you might describe yourself as an extrovert? Oh, yes, and the way you can know you are is because you were excited about the question. You were just daring me to ask you, and you've got one, maybe two hints up right now. Uh, Now, how many of you would describe yourself as maybe neither, but instead like an ambivert, sort of someplace in the middle? Yes, those of us who kind of have our hands about medium height. Not down, not all the way up, but yeah, right there in the middle. How many don't like labels at all? <laughs> yeah, there we go. All right. Fair enough, I get it. But I'm just asking these things to try to quickly highlight a specific tension I think we all face, Christian or not, just as human beings, which is the tension between community and solitude, the tension between our right need to be with others and our right need to be alone and the difficulty of navigating each need well. And I use that word need on purpose. And here's why. It's because someone by the name of Parker Palmer, great writer on the spiritual life, he frames this tension in this way. Check it out. He said, our equal and opposite needs for solitude and community constitute a great paradox. When it is torn apart, both of these life-giving states of being degenerate into deathly specters of themselves. Solitude, split off from community, is no longer a rich and fulfilling experience of inwardness. Now it becomes loneliness, a terrible isolation. 
Community split off from solitude is no longer a nurturing network of relationships. Now it becomes a crowd, an alienating buzz of too many people and too much noise. Isn't that good? So good. In other words, he's saying too much solitude, not enough community, no zoe, no abundant life. And too much community, not enough solitude, no zoe, no abundant life. So how can we keep both of these right needs together? Well, fortunately for all of us, and especially for me, the communicator, we are given three, yes, three, let us statements in this passage in the book of Hebrews that can help. To help hold together today, solitude and community, let us, it says, number one, not stop a somewhere. I'll unpack that. Number two, draw near a someone. And finally, hold on to a something. Not stop a somewhere, draw near a someone, hold on to a something. I'll be much longer on the first, shorter on the second, and quick about the third. Here we go. Hebrews 10 says, in order to follow Jesus rightly, number one, let us not stop a somewhere. And to get to where that somewhere is, let me ask you this question. Here it is. It's question and answer time today. Here we go, class. What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? Like deep down, top of mind response, if you were to be asked because you are right now, yes, what do you want to be known for? So let me go first and just say this. If I were to be really honest, and this should come as no surprise to many of you, I would like to be known as a winner. <laughs> Someone who wins. It's pretty shallow, I'll acknowledge. It's not necessarily a good thing. I'll come back to that. I'm not exactly sure where it comes from. If you were to ask my mother, she would say that's in there because when I was a kid, my dad always let me win at card and board games. Okay. But regardless, it's in there. For example, a, a couple of years ago, I sat through a mandatory coach's training when one of my kids was playing baseball for one of their teams. This is the training they give dads and coaches to make sure that the coaches don't scream at the kids and abuse the umpires. So the instructor got up and asked all of us prospective coaches in the room this question. He asked, do you all know the number one reason kids play sports? And I love this question because I immediately knew the answer. Because instantly, without thinking, as natural to me as my very next breath, the answer came. I thought to myself this. I thought, I know why kids play sports. Kids play sports because they want to beat other kids. <laughs> like I said, it's not necessarily a good thing. No, I thought kids play sports because kids want to win. And immediately after the thought ran through my brain, the instructor said, guess what, dads? No matter what some of you may be thinking right now, the number one reason kids play sports isn't to win. To which I immediately thought, I wouldn't want to be on those teams. <laughs> I bet those teams are going to stink, you know. And then he went on to list off all the things kids do say that they want to play sports for, like being with their friends. It's crazy, you know. Having something fun to do, being part of a team. And I thought, what is wrong with the kids today? <laughs> And then I thought, wait, wait, hang on. What's wrong with me? Like, I am the outlier here. Jesus, please help me. So again, all my life, in response to the question, I just wanted to be known as that. And probably like a lot of you, I like to be known for being a number of other things. Known as a good dad. Known as a good husband. And most of all, known as a person who really loves Jesus. That's me. So again, I'll ask you, what do you want to be known for? 
Now, I don't know what you're known for is, but I do know that you have something. And that something is going to drive quite a lot of your thoughts, your actions, your choices, your behavior. What do you want to be known for? Now, let me ask you this. What happens when you don't measure up to your image? Hmm? What happens when you don't measure up to the thing that you've said you wanted to be known for? What happens when you're not a winner? You're not a good spouse, husband, worker, you know, leader, whatever. I don't know about you, but I know what I do, and I think I know what you might do. Here's what I do. I start to pretend. Not to pretend. I start to defend. I start to mislead. I start managing my image. And do you know why I do this? Why someone does this? We do this because we don't have someone who really knows us who can also help us. We don't have someone who both knows us, who is committed to our highest good no matter what, and at the same time is going to stand with us through everything. And usually that's the case. We don't have that kind of person because we haven't let, we haven't allowed someone to be that to us. And you know, I, can, I get it. There's a number of reasons for this. Perhaps you've been hurt in the past. Perhaps you don't realize how important this is. Or yeah, perhaps it's you with your face, you know, on the Wikipedia page that says introvert. I get all that. But if you don't have someone who both knows all the squiggly things under the rocks in your heart and you don't have someone who is out for your highest good, no matter how much you might protest, guess now what church becomes. Hmm? Church becomes the place where people pretend. People pretend. And churches can be place of such pretense, by the way. Some of you, I thought maybe I'd get an amen for once. All right, that's all right. Now, again, I don't think this is typically true of us, but like with any group of people after a certain size point, this can be at least partially true of us. And so I'm talking about this because I don't ever want it to be typically true of us. But churches, churches can be places where people can go just to pretend. And why? Well, on one hand, here's why. I think it's when you come into a space like this, you, you, you just come in looking so good. I mean, look at you today. Even if you didn't do it yesterday, you maybe showered today. And like you made your kids bathe or shower. You brushed the teeth today. And then no matter, no matter what happened in the minivan, on the way here, if you're married with kids, not all of us are, but some of us are, you know, no matter how much you yelled at said husband, wife, kids, when your feet hit the parking lot, You got out of the car, you put a smile on your face. And your kids all had smiles on their faces because you threatened them with no Christmas. (laughs) If they dared tell somebody how you just spoke to them five minutes ago. But you do this, I get it in part because, yeah, you don't want to put your problems onto somebody else first thing in the morning. uh, And you don't want to be a burden to anyone. But at another level, you're still wanting to be seen as something, and you don't want someone else to see that you are not that. And by the way, if that little parking lot example was you today, it's all good, all is forgiven. I didn't have a camera on you specifically. (laughs) I've just been there and done that myself, all right? But I think the real reason many of us can pretend and defend, not just about parking lot smiles, but about the real stuff that's there is because of this. It's because we don't have a place to be real. We don't have it. A place to be real, which now brings me to this question. Where do you go when you don't measure up to who you say 
you want to be. Where do you go? When you don't measure up to who you say that you want to be, do you have a group of people who are both committed to knowing you and committed to being out for your highest good? Now, here, in the middle of all of this kind of complexity and problemization, at the end of this conversation, the writer of Hebrews wades, he picks a pen, he picks a parchment, he peers into our soul and he aims us somewhere. Here it is, Hebrews 10, 24. He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, Cough, cough, as some are in the habit of doing, <laughs> but encouraging one another. He says, let us not give up meeting together, because when we meet together, the word is episynagogue, we are spurred, oh, we are poked, we are provoked and encouraged towards being who we've said we wanted to be all along, which is a person of love and good deeds. And to become that, a person who's really a person of love and good deeds, maybe you've said you wanted to be that. The writer is saying we all need a somewhere in our lives, a community which loves provokes and encourages. And the reason this is so important to have is this. If you don't have this, then at some point you will have to pretend. The problem with that is this. Pretend people aren't real people and pretend people can't really be loved. Because who can throw their arms, come on, around an image? Who can really love a shadow? Who can embrace an imaginary person? Now, at this point, you're saying, Morgan, you know who's the worst about this? And if you're thinking that, I know who can be the worst about this. Who can pretend the most? It's people like me. It's pastors, people in positions of authority, leadership. And here's why, here's why this can become a problem, among other reasons, is this. Because up to a certain point, you don't want to know all my business. <laughs> you want me to be just fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she does. You want my marriage to be okay. All right. Again, admit it, you, you don't want to come in here on a Sunday morning and have me say out of the blue, hey, today, hey, we're going to start a new series called One More Chance. Because last night I was at home and my wife told me until I got my stuff together and got my life right, she was never coming back to church. She said she was going to give me just one more chance. So let's talk about how to have great relationships today. Oh. No, on one hand, yeah, you want me to be honest, approachable, vulnerable, but on the other, you don't actually want me to overshare, <laughs> and that can add a tremendous amount of pressure to my life, because just like you and you, <laughs> we all need a somewhere to community in order to be real because when the pressure mounts for you to be perfect where do you go when you're not all right now the truth of us is that none of us truth about it is none of us live up perfectly to what we've said we want to be known for and if you don't have that kind of a group of people that meeting when the moment comes when the gap that inevitably opens up between who you've said you want to be and who you really are is you won't have a group of people like that group of friends that carried the guy on his mat to Jesus. You won't have that community to carry you over in that moment. Let me tell you, sometimes, sometimes, 
It's less the failure that ruins our lives. And it's more the lack of being loved through the failure that ruins our lives. It's, it's the being alone through failure that ruins us, not the failure itself. And the reason I'm talking about it like this today is to illustrate, again, one half of this great tension in order to flourish. You need a meeting. You need a place, an synagogue, a Christian community where you can increasingly become known and real. So yeah, dig again. Go and go and go again to worship your smaller communities. Don't give up meeting. The writer says some of y'all do, but you need it somewhere. It takes time, so make the time. That's number one. Let us not stop meeting together. And yet, at the same time, on the other hand, let us, number two, draw near to a someone. Let's explore the other half. Here's our second, let us. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, I'll come back to that word, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. So to experience, again, the, the abundant life of Christ, we don't just need time together. We need time to draw near before God alone. And here's why this is so important and why it's really so simple. We need to do this, ready, wait for it, because Jesus did it. <laughs> As a human, as the perfect human, he did this. Think about it. Before he chose his disciples, he spent all night in prayer. After healing the multitudes, he spends time in solitude in prayer. As a human being, he would escape, to pick up Palmer's phrase, the buzz of the crowd. He'd move away from the multitudes. He'd find a spot alone and draw near himself to his heavenly father. And if Jesus Christ needed solitude as a human to flourish and have abundant life, how much more do we? We do. So why don't we do it if it's that easy, that simple? Well, let me try to name three challenges I think get in the way of our pursuit of the practice of solitude. Three challenges. First, put the first one like this. We have a cultural challenge that gets in the way of solitude. Let me try to describe it. Maybe you've seen the, the first Captain America movie. Some of you have. At the end of it, uh, Steve Rogers, the, the hero, he wakes up from a 70-year deep sleep and he wanders, if you remember the scene, he wanders out from his hospital room right out into the middle of Times Square, New York. All the screens, all the lights, all the sounds, and he's completely disoriented by all of it, by the bombardment of what the modern world has become. All the traffic, the sound, the light, it comes to him at once and he doesn't even know what reality is. And I want to tell you, that is a picture of the modern world, the modern person. We're so buzzed at, we're so beeped at, we're so bombarded every second, it's almost beyond our ability to bear. Let me ask you, when was the last time you turned off and didn't touch your phone for 24 hours? Hmm? If you can't, let me ask you, who owns who? It's a real cultural challenge. Second challenge we face is not just a cultural challenge, but a time challenge. Now, when I was a brand new Christian back in college, I always managed to find a good bit of time to be alone with God. I heard a message like this, go draw near to God. I did it. Great. Then I got married and I had four kids in record time. 
our, this one carries like the winner isn't always, sometimes is the loser. All right. But our oldest was still four when the fourth was born. Oh, so before I knew it, not only was I not alone, I was never alone. And I could never get alone with God. And I felt so guilty about it. And it kind of boiled over one morning. And when I found myself yelling at the kids, stuff like, go away. Leave me alone. Can't you see daddy's trying to spend time with God? You know, like, <laughs> oh, God. I, you know, it's not a good look. I found myself like, what? I've lost the plot, you know. I'm just naming this to say sometimes, especially for parents of small kids, this is a, a tough thing to overcome, but it can be done. Even if your solitude is just 15 minutes, five here, five there at night, in the morning on a park bench someplace, we just have a time challenge. But third, most of all, I think the reason many of us don't practice solitude with God is because we have not just a cultural or a time challenge, but number three, a heart challenge, heart challenge. Years ago, I had a friend. He was a former professional athlete. And of course, Dr. John knows him. Uh, this, our friend was, at the time, at the time, the NFL record holder for all-purpose yards in a game. Kicking, returning, and passing, receiving, all of that. And here's my point. He was beyond fast, like one fast twitch muscle fiber. And once upon a time, here in the church, we had this flag football game. And he had just retired, basically still in his prime, in his 20s, and I was excited to play in the game too. <laughs> sure enough, his fate would have it, you know. He got put on the other team as the receiver, and I was supposed to guard him. Now, I should have known if NFL players couldn't catch him and guard him, like, he's the record holder for people not catching him. I wasn't going to catch him either. What happened? Literally the third play of the game, he caught a pass right in front of me, like two feet away, spun around, and I, I swear he accelerated through the air without his feet on the ground. <laughs> Left me in the dust so fast, he scored a touchdown. Now, after that, I did not want to guard him. I did not want to get anywhere close to him after seeing and experiencing the gap <laughs> between who he was and who I was, I literally moved away from him to the other side of the field like, good luck, fellas. It's all y'all. He's all y'all's. Again, the awareness of the gap moved me away from him. And I think this is a little of how we can feel about God. We know we need time alone with him. Like, we've heard it preached. We've acknowledged it as people of faith. But then our hearts go, nah. Our own hearts, the Bible says, condemn us. Why? Because we think it's going to feel bad. Surely God's going to embarrass me. Surely he's going to sprint away from me. Surely I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm not good enough or faithful enough or whatever. That's our heart's challenge. Many times we don't pursue solitude with God because we're afraid to be alone with God. And the writer of Hebrews, by the way, names this fear. Because when he says you can draw near with confidence. You can have full assurance. He's saying these things because he knows we don't naturally come 
to the table with God with these in our hearts. And if we don't have those, we're just going to stay away. We're going to feel like it's safer somewhere else across the field, so to speak. Oh, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. God isn't condemning. He won't embarrass you, even if it's been a long time since you drew near to him as your heavenly father. It thrills him when you come to him and want to be alone with him. I got four kids. I'm always thrilled. Don't care how long it's been. When one of my kids picks up the phone and calls, listen, you can't have a heart full of assurance when you draw near to God. You can't have the kind of courage that makes solitude alone with God possible. Why? Here's why. It's because it's not your courage that makes it possible. Here's what I mean. The writer here says, as Christians, we can approach God with confidence. Why? He says, because, because we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. What's this? Well, the audience receiving this was a Jewish audience. They were Jewish people who had converted to faith in Christ. Hence the name of the book. Come on, somebody. Hebrews, yes. And they all understood and knew two things here. One, they knew what it was like to have a guilty conscience. They knew because of the law given through Moses that like my friend was infinitely superior to me, speed-wise, that God was infinitely morally superior to humans. They got that part about the guilty conscience and and second, they got what it meant for something to be sprinkled. For something to be sprinkled meant in their past religious context that an animal had died, had given its life for theirs to show how serious God was about sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't look away. He doesn't just wave a wand when something is broken. And by the way, you don't either. And neither do I. Even if someone, say, runs into your car totals your car and you wave your wand and you wave your hand and say hey no worries pal you know it's all forgiven just because you grant forgiveness and they don't pay doesn't mean someone doesn't who pays you do you pay for the brokenness of your car lamp house to be fixed when you wave your hand and they go away you still pay and so an animal was sacrificed to pay for the damage a human had done in the world to show God really cares about real evil, real wrongdoing, real injustice. And when its blood was then sprinkled onto someone, something, that person was clean, cleansed, approved to stand before God. Someone could stand before God for a moment, not because of what they had done or paid, but because of what a lamb had paid with its life. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, all of that was just one great big shadow, pointer to who Jesus Christ would be and what he would do and did do. He went to the cross and like a lamb, lost his life, paid for the brokenness to be fixed. And it's the life in his blood that cleanses us. See, we can have full assurance to go before God, not for a moment, but for forever, not therefore because of our courage, but because of Jesus's. That's good news, and that is the gospel. So don't be afraid, friends, church, of solitude. The most holy and loving being has opened the door wide open for you to meet him in the morning, connect with him in the car, be with him on the bench. You need to draw near before God alone. So let's put it all together. 
To experience zoe, abundant life, we need on one hand a somewhere. On the other hand, we need a someone. We need community with others and solitude with God. What Christian practice can help pull these together? There's one more let us statement. That's the thread that pulls it together. Number three, we have to hold on to a something. I'll be quick about this. He says, let's let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Again, the hope here is that God's going to make it all right in the end because of Jesus. He promised to do it. New heavens, new earth, new heart. We've got the hope of victory over death. And Jesus himself gave us a practice, a practice that can help us hold on to that hope that helps us remember his faithfulness. And that practice he gave us is the practice of the Lord's table, which we'll take in just a moment. It's called communion. It's the Eucharist. It's the thing for which we give thanks. And here's why it holds it together. It's because when we receive the bread and the cup, on one hand, let me tell you, only you can eat it. Only you can drink it. It's a solitary act. Only you can take into you the body and blood of Jesus. No one can eat it for you in the same way that no one else can be right with God in your place. You must receive Christ personally to be right with God. And on the other hand, communion is something we do together as a community. Remember back in 2020, 2021, all those Sundays eating grape juice, you know, drinking grape juice, eating Ritz crackers at home? Yeah. Those were the moments I still felt the most connected to all of you, to all of us, because it does what a meal does, which is to help create and sustain Christian community. Only you can receive communion. Only you can draw near to Christ in this way. And when you do this at the same time, communion reminds us we are a community of people who can increasingly be vulnerable and real with one another because we've all needed a savior at whose table we all eat. So the practice of communion holds the individual and community together. Let's receive it together. I want to ask us as we do here uh, for Dr. John, for Galen Washington to come up here as our elder team. We're going to receive the body and blood of Christ together here quickly as we begin to close. Would you all stand with us online? Would you grab your elements? And if you can grab your elements off the back of your seat. Here's my prayer as we do this. That the mingling together of the individual and the community would find its most glorious expression the practice of the Lord's table among us. As we do this, it's our custom here to read the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to ask you to read this out loud with me. Here we go. Would you say this with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.